That was big Emily. She's a substitute reader. I'm like the longest reading you will have probably this semester. So you can thank her later. Hey, well, welcome. Thanks for braving the snowstorm, um, the blizzard of 2014. So appreciate that. Um, how are we doing? It's surprisingly hot in here for, thank you, for the sake of how cold it is outside. But I was going to go vest, but I decided... You know, it's a little hot for me. Sorry, John. So, okay. Move out of the way there a little. Okay. For those who don't know me, I'm Sid Druin. I'm the campus minister for Reformed University Fellowship, also known as RUF. And RUF is a Christian campus ministry that exists for the convinced and the unconvinced, for the believer and the unbeliever. Uh, for those of you who only have classes in chambers, and for those of you who have no classes in chambers both sets of the majors, okay? And for those of you who are mostly sad, most of the time, if you had a spirit animal, your spirit animal would be Eeyore. (laughs) Okay, I know. Um, I don't know if Winnie the Pooh would be very happy being... Anyway, um, if you're mostly happy, or maybe you're mostly happy most of the time, and your spirit animal, if you had a spirit animal, would be Tigger. So it exists for both of you uh, as well. And finally, RUF exists for those who are here because you followed a guy or a girl into the room. Or if you're here because uh, this is one way in which you express what it means to follow Jesus. So thanks for coming, in other words, whoever you are, wherever you are. We hope you feel welcome. Um, We're glad you're here. We hope you get to know RUF and that RUF gets to know you. And part of that is, again, we're trying to rotate people in in terms of doing readings and doing announcements. So um, hopefully you feel like it's not just me um, that is RUF. RUF is a a number of students, including you, even if you're here for the first time. And we want to thank you if you're here for the first time. We know it takes a lot of courage to come for the first time. It's not easy. All right. So uh, I have a sign-up sheet, I think, to pass around, which I did not bring up here. Um, but if you have a second, uh, would you mind doing that? If you've already done it, go pen. Right, here you go. Oh, thanks, Bethany. All right. So if you have a second, please go ahead and do that. Um, if you're already on there, please don't do it. You're just going to get two emails. I'm just not that good. Okay, at media administration. So uh, also we have a Facebook group. Uh, I think it's REF Davidson. And so if you look that up, these are just ways to get better informed. You shouldn't feel any pressure to sign up for anything. It's just if you're interested in kind of getting to know RUF and also kind of getting in the loop. That should help you. Okay. Uh, this semester in large group, we've been discussing the life of David. Uh, David's story is in the first part of the Bible in the Old Testament. And it's in particularly in the books of First and Second Samuel and then also First Kings the very, very beginning, the first two chapters. Um, let me, again, explain why there's why we're studying this. There's two reasons why we're, we picked out David's life of all the lives in the Bible. First, David is in many ways so very ordinary. He's so much like each of us in this room. Like us, his life is filled with successes and failures, moments of stress and disappointment, and also air-clearing Laughter and singing. And David is so relatable, right? He gets angry, he gets jealous, he messes up big time. But he also has these moments where he prays and he cries and he dances with joy. Yet secondly, the second reason we're studying 
David is because he's so not like us. He's not like us in some ways. His life is meant to be a signpost to point to the King Jesus who is called in the New Testament over and over again the Son of David. And that Son of David parallel is means that every time that we read David's successes and failures, there's a way in which those successes and failures point to Jesus' perfect life and sacrificial death on the cross for successful people and failing people alike. This is why our title for the series of A Life of David is called The God After Our Own Hearts. The God After Our Own Hearts. It's a play on the way that David is described in 1 Samuel 13, 14 as a man after God's own heart. Um, And his life does give us a powerful Christian example of what it looks like to live uh, the Christian life, but dare to be more like David is not the takeaway completely of our time together. Um, The life of David is primarily about the God of the universe and the way that he breathtakingly loves people like David and people like us. Okay, so that's a little bit of an intro. And our pastor tonight gets this, familiar, this truth through a very familiar story. David and Goliath. We just read it earlier. And I'm going to get to David and Goliath by way of another story that's very different. But I'm going to pray first. So would you join me in praying? Father, uh, I do thank you for the opportunity um, to sit under your word. Um, it's a beautiful night. Um, it's enchanting in many ways. And I, I do thank you that these students are here and that we get a chance to set our hearts aright and set our minds on the things um, that you care about. And I pray that you would help us to know that, what that is, that you would change our hearts and change our minds and, and teach us your ways. I pray, Father, that Jesus would be high and lifted up and he'd become more believable and more beautiful to each of us in this room, no matter where we are with him, no matter what we brought into this room. Uh, many of us are in very different places um, in terms of school or in terms of friendships or in terms of our emotional state. And I do pray that you'd be with each of us in a unique and individual way through your word. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. So when I was a junior in college, uh, my friend Tom and I backpacked in Turkey, the country. Okay? <laughs> Not the lunch meat. Okay? <laughs> he went after a girl, and he went to see about a girl and who was studying abroad in Turkey at the time. And I went for the adventure of it, to take in the sights and the sounds of Turkey. Uh, Before we romanticize my college life and start to like the college Sid better than the current Sid, um, which is a danger, um, (laughs) let me give a few words of explanation. First, this story is clearly a makeup story for last week's story. I don't know if you remember last week's story. I talked about eighth grade me and PE football and how I cried about PE football. So it's the second large group of the semester, and I feel like it's time to dig out my cool college story. Okay, second, backpacking is a bit of a stretch. Okay, I did have a backpack. We did stay in a few hostels. But it was also a few months after 9-11. And so when we went to this Muslim-dominated country of Turkey, we were pretty much the only tourists there. And so we had our pick of five-star hotels for very cheap. And so we pretty quickly abandoned the hostels. Okay? Getting back to my story, um, oh, we, my friend Tom and I also didn't really actually hike across Turkey. I know that's part of backpacking. We didn't walk across the country um, or hitchhike. That's even cooler. Um, but we actually just instead took buses in the middle of the night from city to city in Turkey. And I want to tell you a story about one of these trips. 
um, we were going from the west coast of Turkey in a, in a city called Ephesus all the way across to Ankara in the central part of Turkey. And, uh, and we took these buses in the middle of the night. They would go all night. And so a lot of it was just kind of nodding off the entire time. This is where we slept, so we had, plenty, we had jam-packed our itinerary. So we would do stuff during the day and sleep on the bus at night, which was very not smart. Um, but anyway, in the middle of the night, maybe 3 a.m. or something like that, um, we stopped at a rest stop. A Turkish rest stop, I know. <laughs> and it was in the middle of nowhere, in the middle of Turkey. And Tom and I were half asleep, and we kind of stumbled off the bus, and then we separated and went our separate ways. Um, he went to get some food, I went to the bathroom. And I remember stumbling into the bathroom, taking care of business, and then coming back outside and kind of blinking in the darkness and then this few kind of spotted streetlights. And then I realized that I had no idea which bus I came out of. Right? So there was a whole line of tour buses going to various places, just like bus after bus after bus. And there were all these different license plate numbers in the window, but I didn't know what license plate number we were on or tour number we were on or whatever it was because we had just hired a bus the, the day before. Um, and, you know, we, I didn't recognize the people because I was like half asleep most of the time. And so there I was in the middle of nowhere, in the middle of Turkey, without any way to know how to get from there. That is when I panicked, like any natural person. And I thought to myself, I don't know which bus is mine. I don't know where Tom is. I'm in the middle of nowhere in Turkey. I don't know the language. I don't even know where the buses are going and which ones are going to Ankara. I don't know where it would drop me off in Ankara if I figured that out. How can I get in touch with Tom? I don't have a cell phone. How can I get in touch with anybody, anywhere? How can I even call home? And there I was. And in the words of verse 11 of this passage, I was dismayed and greatly afraid. <laughs> okay? Whether you've studied abroad or you've traveled on your own in this world, or Davidson College feels like a faraway country for you, Okay. We've all had moments when we felt that sinking feeling of intense distress and terror. Maybe you were little and you were lost in a department store, and it all ended with an ice cream cone and a nice security officer. Maybe it was more recent for you. Maybe it involved a health scare of some sort, or maybe um, sometimes you wake up and you can't and you feel like you can't really breathe very well. And your mind can't stop gnawing on a conversation or a test that you just had or you're going to have soon. But there's also sort of the more subtle day in and day out anxieties and disappointments that this passage is getting at. How do we deal with life's constant challenges? How do we deal with them? In our passage tonight, 1 Samuel chapter 17, King Saul and the Israelites feel this way, this anxiety, this disappointment, this fear, in the face of Goliath. Let's review the facts about Goliath. He's huge. He's violent. And he's merciless. And he's daily promising for 40 days that God's people will either meet A, a painful death, or B, forced labor, labor and sexual slavery. Our passage tonight is inviting us to enter into this very familiar story in a fresh way. It's asking us to consider where to enter the story. Where are we to enter the story? Who do we identify with when we read this? 
where do we choose to enter the scene in all of our dismay and all of our great fears? 1 Samuel chapter 17 illustrates a simple truth in a vivid way. Perfect love casts out all fear. And this perfect love looks like a combination of our faith and God's victory. Perfect love casts out all fear, and this perfect love looks like our faith and God's victory. That's the takeaway of what we're going to look at. But what I love about this is that this is a narrative that invites us into two very different perspectives. First, the story of David and Goliath invites us to walk in David's shoes. I'm really tempted to say sandals every time, but I just can't do it. Okay, so, and this perspective describes what faith looks like, what faith looks like in the face of fear. Second, we, in the story of David and Goliath, we're invited to step into the shoes of Saul and the Israelites. And this perspective describes what God's victory looks like in the face of fear. So simply put, first we're going to look at David in the act of faith, what faith looks like. And second, we're going to look at Jesus, the object of our faith. And you've got an outline on, the, on your piece of paper that was handed out that might help you. Usually I'll go through a passage verse by verse, but because I'm kind of taking us through two storylines, we're going to go ahead and do it that way. So you might hold cling tightly to the outline. Might, you might need that today. Okay, <laughs> So let's take a look. Um, we're looking at, first, David's faith in the face of fear, verses 2 through 11. Okay? We'll start there. If you've never read the Bible or heard who King David is, if you've never had that, you probably still know the story of the giant Goliath and the little one named David. Okay? And whether it was like the Sunday school greatest hits that you always heard in every single session that the new teacher did start with David and Goliath for like your entire childhood... Or maybe it was like in one of those books that was lumped between Goldilocks and the story of Aladdin. Okay, and that's sort of your exposure to David and Goliath. Um, Regardless, this story probably feels like a children's story to you. Okay? But that's not the Bible's intention, nor is it the reality. So let me take a side road to rescue this story from the fiction section of your local library. Okay? Okay? So I'd like to kind of think about the historicity of this passage for just a second, on just a quick side road. I think the place where things get sketchy for us, where we get a little skeptical, is in the description of Goliath, right, in verses 4 through 7. He's somewhere between 7 feet and 9 feet tall, probably closer to 9 feet tall, okay? And then his armor weighs 125 pounds, and his spear tip weighs 25, 15, excuse me, 15 pounds. That's a lot. And that's very tall, okay? And that seems very unreal. But I want to give you some thoughts about why that might be true. Interestingly, there's an Egyptian letter called the Papyrus Anastasi I, which is written about the 13th century BC, in which the author, who I really don't know, maybe Anastasi, I don't know. But anyway, the author says this. They are Canaanite warriors, and they are seven to nine feet tall. Another source outside the Bible validating what the story says. Okay, but And maybe you're sort of still skeptical and you're about ready to throw out all of ancient history. But let me assure you another thing. Okay, I did some incredible Wikipedia research, which is so valid and reliable. And I found that there's nearly a hundred people 
in the last century alone who, who were between 7 and 9 feet tall. Okay? And furthermore, there are 21 people alive right now between 7 and 9 feet tall. Okay? So we have, have to throw out contemporary facts as well if we want to throw out uh, the, the stats about Goliath. It's also worth noting that the scripture's account of David's life corresponds with what little physical evidence that we have for the time period. I don't know if you know this, but we live in like the CSI age. Right? Everything has to be forensically proven. You know, like, oh, the fiber of the hair and the DNA sample. You know, look, and that's great, but there's just not a lot of stuff for 1000 BC. But what we do have confirms the story of 1st and 2nd Samuel. And it's, it says this, there are inscriptions that say the house of David. So we know David really existed. Okay, there are cities, like the, the city of Shiloh, that match the description of what happened to it in 1 Samuel. It got burned. And then there's also the same customs, the same weapons, and the same musical instruments depicted on vases and pottery shards that we see described in 1 and 2 Samuel. So there's a good reason to believe that this is not just a children's story, and that this actually belongs in the nonfiction section of your local library. Okay? And that's sort of a helpful thought, I think, as we go through it. But really, the effect of these verses is not intended, verses 2 through 11, is not intended to be a history lesson. It's not just historical. Goliath's size, his weapons, his words, are intended to terrify his audience. Terrify the Israelites, and terrify us. Look, I just want to tell you a quick story. My son, every time we read this story, I can't read this in the children's Bible anymore. Because he gets so afraid of Goliath. My son's three years old. Okay? And William gets scared and has nightmares every time we read David and Goliath. Okay? Now, I would argue that William is better at believing this is historical and entering into the story than any of us here. And in fact, William gets the intended effect of Goliath better than any of us here. Because Goliath is supposed to be scary. Okay? And Goliath feels like he's unconquerable, and the situation should feel impossible if we're jumping into the Israelites' shoes. And David, so, and this is why Saul, who's described as head and shoulders taller than any other Israelite, he's the champion of Israel, trembles in his boots, and refuses to go and fight Goliath for 40 days. Because Goliath is terrifying. Okay? And that's why it says. They were dismayed and greatly afraid. Okay. Goliath's size and weaponry is also why, in verse 28, if you scroll there, we have uh, a description of, of Eliab, David's older brother, yelling at David. This, for me, is like one of the greatest um, moments of the scripture, right? So real. Who doesn't have a sibling dynamic going on, okay? You see, David can't understand why no one's going to go out and fight Goliath, but Eliab knows David's heart because he's the older brother, right? And so he assumes and, and accuses David of neglecting his duties to get some blood sport entertainment, right? That's what, he's, that's what he's really there for. And clearly David doesn't get how mean and how strong and how well-armed Goliath is. And David is clearly forgetting that he is small and that Goliath is way out of his sheep-tending league, Right? And then when King Saul hears about David's question, he asks, him, he asks David to interview with him. In verse 33, Saul adds to David's discouragement about David's weakness. David is only a youth. 
young and small, according to Saul, and he lacks battle experience. He tends sheep and plays music for Pete's sake. Okay? And finally, returning again to Goliath, we see that David is mocked in verses 42 through 43. Next slide. He sees that he's disdained, that Goliath, quote, disdained him for he was but a youth. And he mocks his choice of weapon. Where's your sword? Where's your spear? Are you coming at me with sticks? Am I a dog? Is this fetch? Okay? And so, here's my question. Can we relate at all to David here? I just went through a catalog of discouragement. My guess is that a lot of us in this room, a lot of us on this campus, work so hard at school, do so many events and councils and clubs, are dying to get a bid or a starting position on the team because we were told at one point or another that we couldn't, that we were unable, that we were too young and too small. Someone or many people told us that we were weak or not able to go, as in the language of verse 33. I know for me, I had an older sister who reminded me daily how socially unable I was. <laughs> I never went out enough. I never, I had too few friends, and I wasn't good enough with people to be well liked. And this stream of discouragement for me drove me into books and sports. It made me incredibly desirous of good grades and wanting to play varsity at every level. And even now, I still hear my sister's voice in my head, and maybe you have people like this for you, that every single time I hear her say something, and that voice makes me think that people will only like me for what I do, and not for who I am. And further, that they will only like me if I produce something for them, like if this is a good sermon, or if I give you a good insight or two in a one-on-one. And then, and only then, will I get a few crumbs of affirmation, a few crumbs of affection from the table. What's your story? Everyone has one, right? What are the giants? Who are the older brothers? Who are the kings in your story? How do they play into how you handle life's anxieties and disappointments? How are they driving you? How are they driving us to, to perform perfectly up the hill? And how are they driving us to desire to be liked at any personal cost down the hill? But of course, what this passage is actually talking about too is that it's focusing on David overcoming giant fears and disappointing comments through his faith in God, right? While Saul and Eliab and the rest of Israel are wringing their hands and paralyzed in fear... David sees the whole scene at the Valley of Elah completely differently. Right? He has, in the words of Eugene Peterson, a God-dominated imagination. A God-dominated imagination. God, though invisible, is bigger and has better weapons and is more experienced in warfare than any mere man, no matter how well-armed or big that man is. And David rightly asks Israel and Eliab, In the face of discouragement, he says, don't we have a living God? Don't we have a living God? Doesn't that make a difference? And when Saul counts David out, David responds to him by detailing all of the private, out-of-the-way moments in the wilderness with sheep 
that God provided for him and delivered him from the paws of lions and bears. And we see that in verses 34 through 37. And finally, David tells Goliath in the face of his taunting and his mocking and his disdain. In verse 46, the day, this day, the Lord will deliver you into my hand. And guess what? In verses 48 through 51, God does just that. He delivers Goliath into David's hands. And so the basis of David's faith was an extraordinary faith. An extraordinary belief in the might of God for the present. And the ordinary care of God demonstrated over past experiences. Do you see that? So he trusts that God is bigger and better and mightier in the present than anything he's going to face. But he also trusts that God is more personal, intimate, and caring in the past than anything he's ever experienced. And so that informs the way he exercises his faith. And so we're called to exercise our faith like David, to press into things we procrastinate into, the things that we procrastinate because we're afraid of failing, and also to sit in the memories that we have of severe disappointments with friends and family. Okay? Places where we lost control. Times when we felt counted out. We exercise faith by remembering those moments when God showed up. When we were abroad and we were lost and somehow we made it back to our host family. Okay? Or when we were in the mall and we were in a department store and all of a sudden the cop found us cowering between the women's shoe display and the sales rack for clothing. And he brought us and gave us ice cream. Okay? Or the way that our tests came back negative even though all the doctors predicted the worst. Or, finally, the way that God got you through that paper when you started hours late, days late, and you still finished it. In other words, we get to choose to doubt our doubts. We get to choose to doubt our doubts and believe that God was there in that moment working for our good for his glory. And then we get to exercise faith in the present, right? We get to say, we get to believe more in God than in Goliath. We get to live out of the approval of Jesus versus living for the approval of the Sauls in our life. The kings, the people who control things, whether it's social or academic. And often this looks like talking to yourself about who God is. Especially when the voices inside of our heads tell us that these circumstances are impossible. Or the shame gets so heavy that we don't feel like we can fight anymore because we're so embarrassed about who we are. And this is where every sermon you've ever heard stops. (laughs) Faith, 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 faith. The karate chops, right? Okay, and then, you know, and then maybe it ends with like a poem or like an inspirational story about a celebrity or like Thomas Edison or something who overcame impossible odds and invented the light bulb, okay? Or, you know, changed everything for the benefit of all humankind. And then the preacher or the teacher or the mentor will usually add something like, you can do all things through Christ who strengthens you. Or nothing is impossible with God. Okay? Those, although out of context, are true verses. Okay? They are. 
But there are two problems with only talking about our faith when we read 1 Samuel 17. Okay? Here are the two problems. First, David is clearly more than a good example. Clearly more than a good example. Okay? And this is because the Bible is not People Magazine. Okay? It's not People Magazine. It's not making us jealous or making us pity people who are larger than life. Right? Celebrities like us, or, oh, that's pathetic. She's gained so much weight. He's lost his looks. I mean, I would never walk a dog like that. Okay? <laughs> or, wow, she's so put together after having a baby just weeks ago. Right? And so the, the Bible's not about that. The story of Scripture centers on not David, but David's greatest son, Jesus. Okay? Jesus, not David, not us, is the one who defeats our enemies. Sin and death and Satan. And sin and death and Satan are what cause fears and disappointments in our world. So it's a beautiful thing that we're not in charge of beating them. In other words, let me put it this way. A faith like David is important and true, and that's why I spent so much time on it. But it requires the faithfulness of the son of David. A faith like David requires the faithfulness of a son of David. The son of David, Jesus Christ. Jesus' faithfulness in his life, his death, and his resurrection is the power behind our faith. It's the object of our faith. We don't have faith in our ability to produce faith. We have faith in Jesus' faithfulness. Second, the message of Christianity is not God helps those who help themselves. Okay? It's not like in this story, God sort of just pitches in some help. Oh, here, let me get you a ladder, David, so that you can climb up spiritually and throw the slingshot stone into David into Goliath's eye. Okay? That's not what's going on. God is not just giving us a hand in life. God is completely rescuing us in all of our inabilities and in all of our weaknesses. In Jesus Christ, God lives life for you with perfect faith. So that when we believe in Jesus, we don't just get good advice or helping hand. We get a whole new life. You see, when we spiritualize the story of David and Goliath, which is fair, we all want so badly only to be David, don't we? Okay? We want to be the only one on the scene with Goliath that thinks, I got it together, I'm strong. And so we just so desperately want to graduate from our weakness, don't we? We want to get past it. We want to get beyond our insecurities. But the reality is, when it comes to big things like salvation, important things like eternal security or life significance, you and I are not David. We're not. Instead, we're Saul and the Israelites. It's important that we enter the story of 1 Samuel 17 at, these, at this place, in verse 11, greatly afraid and dismayed. Forty days wringing our hands, paralyzed by fear. Because whether we're made much of in our life, maybe, maybe we've been the golden child in our family, or a Davidson, we're in every alumni handbook, okay? Maybe, maybe we feel tall and attractive like Saul, or whether we are overlooked and we feel lost and fearful in the crowd of the Israelites, we fail. 
we're not good enough, we're not strong enough, and we're not faithful enough. And this is such a hard truth, but believing this truth about ourselves is actually the most relieving and freeing thing you can do. Let me give you an example. It's a pretty extreme example, admittedly, okay? I have a friend who is a recovering alcoholic, a really good friend, okay? And he's been sober for a while now, and one time he told me the story about how he became sober. And it was a long process. He had a lot of relapses, a lot of failures, but finally he had a sponsor, an alcoholic anonymous, an alcoholics anonymous, who helped him immensely. Do you know what this man said? He said it over and over and over again. And finally my friend got freed, at least partially, from his addiction. Okay? His sponsor told him this. You can't do it, and you're going to die. You can't do it, and you're going to die. The last thing that anyone would say to anybody, okay, about addiction, okay? Where is that in Care Bears? Where is that in Dora the Explorer? Okay? <laughs> Where is that in our entire elementary school education system? Okay? You're, you can't do it, and you're going to die. He meant this. You can't do it. You can't. And if you keep trying to get sober on your own, you're going to die. And this warning drove my friend to the end of himself and his own efforts and into the arms of a higher power, Jesus. Because he realized he couldn't manage his addiction. He couldn't control his desire to drink. But Jesus could do both of those things and is doing both of those things in his life. I understand some of you are like, just cringing. That's a crass simplification Okay, of the therapeutic process of addiction. Okay, I get it. You're sort of like, what about... Okay, that's fine. We can't... But I want you to understand sort of the point, the takeaway of all this, is that we can't manage our sin. We can't control our fears and our discouragements and disappointments. We can't manage and control the fears within us and the discouragements outside of us. Because even our faith fails. Do you realize that? We can't be like David because there's many times when we would have taken the five smooth stones from the brook and run the opposite direction. We need a true champion, a faithful representative whose victory will be counted to our account. We need the new and the better David, Jesus, who clothed himself in youth and weakness so that he could not just fight sin with us, but that he could fight sin for us. We need a champion. Literally, that word in the Hebrew means a mediator. A man between. Who has fought Satan's temptations in the wilderness with a few sheep in order to crush his head, not with a sword or a spear, but with a pitiable weapon, the cross. You see, wherever you are right now with Jesus, however you feel at this moment, the invitation of this passage is to receive the victory of Jesus. Once and for all, for every fear and every disappointment. To fight the daily battles of faith, like David, we need to rest in the knowledge that Jesus, the Son of God, has already won the war. 2,000 years ago. 
I don't know how in the world, in the long line of identical buses, in the middle of nowhere, in the inky darkness, and the few spotted streetlights of Turkey of a rest stop that I found my way back. Okay? I don't know how, in the panic of fear, in the thick darkness that feels like you're going to swallow you up, that I ever possibly picked the right bus and so all of a sudden saw my extremely red-headed friend, Tom, sitting in the aisle seat listening to music. Okay? He had no idea where I was. I had no idea where he was. But I picked the right bus out of an impossible lineup in a small rest stop in the middle of Turkey, in the middle of the night. And here's what I'm convinced of. I'm convinced Jesus won. That night, and furthermore. Look, that wasn't a Goliath moment. I get that. Okay? <laughs> that wasn't like, ha, like this is the ultimate victory over ultimate things. Okay, I was, it was just a boy, well, a college boy, in the middle of Turkey. Okay? But the son of, I think the son of David delivered me from the paw of my fear and into the open window seat next to my friend Tom. And this makes me trust, and I hope those moments in your life and the reality that's unseen but still meaningful and still true of God who is mighty. I hope that those things make us trust that Jesus, the son of David, has prepared a place for you. He's prepared a place for me by his throne and by his side where there's fear and there's disappointment no more. Would you pray with me? Father, I do thank you for David and Goliath. Um, do you confess that it's very hard um, to understand where we are in that story? I do confess that every one of us wants to be a master slingshotter. Um, and it's very hard um, to trust Jesus that you are fighting for us when life feels so hard. And it's, it's hard, Jesus, to trust you when you seem so invisible. Um, and sometimes you feel so unreal. But I do pray that you, through texts like this, and through past experiences interpreted with a God-dominated imagination, would teach us what it looks like to believe, but more importantly, what it looks like um, to believe in your faithfulness. The way that you are with us, and for us, and have fought and stomped on the head of our enemies. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen.